served as Jewish thing? Sir? You've earned this. The right to win. You put that in your head. And you, coach. Expect to win. You've earned that. For all my long-term investors from Cali to Westchester, my 305ers and my Southwesters, my Seattle Cruisers and my Midwestern Jesters, across these tracks running so reckless, all-time high, shiny like a new necklace, like some Jacob Bling, feeling so freshness. It took two years, but we're finally here. Stocks making new tops, put it in high gear. Throw the throttle, grab a bottle, say cheers, salute, Chentiani Gambe. We knew we'd get back here someday, because markets have a way of reverting to the mean. That's up and to the right, if you know what I mean. It doesn't happen every day every week or every year but over time markets rise and that's why we're here gotta be patient have a plan for success that's how we get down on the investopedia express Welcome back and welcome aboard and toot the horns and ring the bells because the stock market is back at record highs It took 512 trading days to get back to a record close for stocks. The last time the S&P 500 was at these levels was January 3rd, 2022. That was the longest stretch of time between closing highs since the 1,375-day trading streak from October 2007 to March 2013. In case you forgot, that was the period of time encapsulating the great financial crisis, the brutal bear market that followed it, and the long, hard road to recovery. This recent journey to this 35% gain in new highs over the past two years took us from the early days of the end of the COVID pandemic, up and down the inflation ladder through a series of aggressive rate hikes by the Federal Reserve around two deadly and serious wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, amid the AI boom, and under the umbrella of the magnificent seven mega cap tech stocks. The path is always different, but the destination remains the same. And for long-term investors, particularly long-term index investors, it's been a great time to be long. The Dow, S&P 500, and NASDAQ 100 ETFs, those exchange-traded funds that track those indexes are also at record highs. Total annualized returns over the past 10 years for the Diamond ETF, the Spider Dow Jones Industrial Average ETF Trust, 185% or 11% a year. SPY, the mega popular Spider ETF that tracks the S&P 500, that's up 215% over the past decade. And the Q's, the QQQ, the Invesco ETF that tracks the NASDAQ 100, up 424% since 2014. We are, Maximus. Stop throwing your sword. That's dangerous. This particular bull market for the S&P 500 actually started running on October 12, 2022, technically speaking. That was the low for the S&P 500, making this bull market about 465 days old and counting. 465 days is actually right around the median length for all bull markets since 1928, believe it or not. The average bull market is around 990 days. That's another 525 days from now, or another year and five months. There could be more room for this bull to run, and bull markets have been lasting longer and longer over the past few decades as the U.S. economy has gotten bigger and more developed. And that leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one. What usually happens when the stock market hits a new peak? Well, a lot of people might say it's a sign of a top and it will only go down from here. They don't believe that good things can last and get even better. It's that loss aversion bias that a lot of people carry around with them, perfectly human. But as long-term investors, we like looking at the data. Men lie, women lie, numbers don't. <laughs> 
That's right, Hova. Those numbers don't lie. And as Ryan Dietrich of the Carson Group reminds us, when the S&P 500 makes a new 52-week high after more than a year with that one, it's higher a year later, 15 out of 15 times, and not more than 17% on average in that following 12-month span. The median gain is around 14%. Not bad. And as our pal Sam Rowe reminded us last week, Great years in the stock market are usually followed by good years. That's last year into this year. Trends in motion usually stay in motion until something knocks them off the tracks. Number two, it's not just that the S&P 500 is at an all-time high. There are over 100 stocks at all-time highs as well and 179 stocks at 52-week highs across U.S. markets. That's pretty good breath, and it gets better once you look at which widely held stocks are making new tops. I'm talking about McDonald's, Meta, Microsoft, Marriott, and MasterCard, and I'm just doing the M's. You want some A's? How about Applied Materials, AMD, Abercrombie & Fitch, Allstate, and Arm Holdings? You get your chips, your baggy jeans, your insurance, your Big Macs and your fries, your hotels and your credit cards all hitting higher highs. That's a big bet by investors that business and consumer demand is still strong and will remain that way. If a recession is coming, like many people believe, no one is telling these stocks about it. And number three, if a recession or steep economic slowdown is coming, then why are consumers feeling so much better lately? Consumer sentiment jumped 13% over the past month and has surged 29% since November, the biggest two-month increase since 1991, according to the University of Michigan's latest sentiment survey. That slowdown in inflation, particularly gas prices, has a lot to do with our improving moods, but so does the continued strength of the jobs market, wage increases, and the fact that interest rates are headed lower. A year ago, rates were on the rise, gas was 30 cents more expensive per gallon, and headline inflation was over 6%. Despite all that, the economy grew more than 4% and the stock market was up 24% last year. Still, a lot could go wrong. Inflation could spike again, unemployment could rise if companies need to protect their profit margins, and the commercial real estate market could totally collapse. We can find even more things to worry about if we want, but right now, investors and consumers are feeling all right. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead, and it's all about earnings, especially tech earnings. We'll get results from widely held chip companies like NVIDIA, AMD, Broadcom, Arm Holdings, Intel, and Micron. And as we said earlier, a few of these stocks are at all-time highs. We learned last week from Taiwan Semiconductor, the biggest chip maker in the world, that demand is strong, and that's good news for the whole sector. We'll also get results from Tesla, Netflix, Visa, IBM, J&J, and American Airlines, to name a few. And guidance, my friends, is everything. How strong do these consumer-facing companies feel going into 2024? On the economic front, we'll get the preliminary fourth quarter GDP reading for the U.S. economy, and that should still be pretty strong, but maybe a little lighter than the 5.2% we saw in the third quarter. We'll also get the December Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, on Friday. The PCE fell to an annual rate of 2.6% in November, its lowest level since early 2021. Fed members are going to be pretty quiet for the next week and a half ahead of the central bank's next decision on interest rates, January 31st. Spoiler alert, no changes in rates expected, but there's now a 46% chance the Fed will cut rates by a quarter percent at the March 20th meeting, according to the CME's Fed Watch tool. Overseas will get interest rate decisions from the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of Canada. The financial planning industry has been undergoing a transformation over the past decade, and at the heart of it is the needs of clients like us who are searching for more than just asset allocation or estate planning. We want holistic financial planning, a one-stop shop 
for all of our needs and our needs are growing. And inside the industry, there's been a massive wave of consolidation and acquisitions that have left us with a few mega firms that sit atop the industry. No one has a better vantage point on this transformation than Peter Malouk. He's the CEO of Creative Planning. And if you haven't heard of Creative Planning, you likely know or might even be a client of one of their many registered investment advisors that it has acquired over the past few years. That or you aren't watching the Golf Channel and seeing their commercials. Peter and his team have built Creative Planning into one of the industry giants with over $130 billion in assets under management and another $115 billion in retirement assets with over 1,100 financial advisors under one roof. That's a lot of assets and a lot of expertise. And Peter is our very special guest this week on The Express. Thanks so much for being here. Good to be with you. I am a client of an RIA, and I know that I have a lot of needs. I get very complicated the older I get. Am I the typical client? I'm in my mid-50s. I have tax needs, insurance needs. I got kids in college. Am I typical? You would be. Yeah. If you took all our clients and put them together, that about averages out to our typical client. We cover a lot of metrics, though, because we have an emerging wealth team that works with people that are getting started. Those and a lot of those clients are much younger, but the largest segment of our client are in their fifties and sixties. If you just look at the American demographics, that typical millionaire or multimillionaire next door tends to be between age fifty-three and seventy-two, and so that's that age where people aren't spending it down but they've had enough time to build it up and they're seeking out professional help. Yeah, I'll say hello to those neighbors of mine when I see them. Um, you have a lot of visibility into the changing investment and planning needs of households, given your size. What's changed and how has the industry responded to it? I talked about holistic planning. We need a lot of different things, but it's been a very rapid decade of transformation. What's your perspective? Oh, it looks completely different than uh, earlier on. So we really got going in, in around 2004. We became, I believe, the first firm in the country to really put investments, planning, tax, and law all together in one place with any scale. And we used to be competing with RIAs that were only managing money. That's what, and I mean, like 98% of RIAs, that's, that's what they were doing. They were managing money. And some of them were doing some planning with a separate fee. And we were doing all of these other things. And, you know, over the next 10 years, we were the fastest growing RIA that had ever existed. And we were doing no marketing, no advertising. It was just this, like a magnet. People wanted to have taxes taken into consideration in their portfolio. They wanted to make sure their trust was managed differently than their IRAs. So if you're looking for just money management, it made a big difference. But a lot of people wanted other things. They wanted you to take care of other things for them, whether it was a will or trust or Medicare supplement or a tax return or whatever. Well, today, if you look at the landscape and you look at the top 100 firms, I bet 80% of them are also doing planning. And the majority of them are doing it without a separate fee. And some of them are also doing something else, whether it's tax or something else. It's just completely changed. And you know, that's kind of how capitalism works, right? Everyone charges a fee to do something. And then someone comes along and offers more for that fee or reduces the fee. And then the marketplace has to respond. And that's what's happened here. Yeah. So your response in building creative planning into this juggernaut for financial services, you've done a lot of it through acquisitions and you're not alone. So why are we seeing this mass consolidation in the industry? It feels like kind of what's happening with doctors and small family practices. They want to be under one roof where there's a lot of sort of support. But why do you see it happening and why have you done it that way? I think it's a, a confluence of, of various factors. I mean, so one, I think outside investors look at the space and say, hey, this reminds me a lot of where the insurance industry was 15, 20 years ago. And the insurance industry being mainly group benefits, like when you have a job and you got your health insurance and disability, long-term care all through your employer, or property and casualty, where a business is insuring their fleet of cars and their buildings and their board of directors and, and all of that stuff. 
those two spaces used to be very fragmented. You'd go to a town like or a city like Cincinnati or or LA or or Birmingham, Alabama, and there would be 30 different people selling property and casualty coverage and 30 different people selling group health insurance. And what investors found is, hey, when people go, they go through a lot of due diligence to pick somebody to handle their property casualty or benefits. And once they do that, they tend to stay with those people if those people do a good job. And so every year it keeps going, kind of like Netflix, right? And so it's just, and so that space saw rapid consolidation starting 20 plus years ago. And today we have a few big players, much like you see in the tax world. You see four really big players, then you see some regional players, then you see thousands of smaller players. So I think outside investors like private equity and so on saw this space and said, hey, this feels like that. We've got a couple of things happening. One, people are leaving the brokerage houses. They're leaving Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and, and UBS and saying, I want a fiduciary who has to act in my best interest all the time. I want an advisor who's not selling me their own investment products. So that's one factor that helps the independent space. The second is that people see it as if the early stages of the way insurance was 20 years ago, where there's going to be consolidation, there will be a few winners that are able, and those winners will be able to deliver more for their clients at the same or a lower fee. And so they think there will be those winners too. And I think you put all of that together and you start to see a lot of money pour into the space and that's created consolidation. You talk about investors, you talk about private equity, you've taken some on your own, not to do acquisitions, but I guess to bolster your firm, make it stronger for the long run. But what is it about your industry? You mentioned some of it. Is it the recurring revenue, the generational wealth transfer that attracts private equity investors to this space? Well, you, one, you got the people moving for the brokerage houses, but but the second, they see the space growing in and of itself, just from clients coming from brokerage houses. You know, but I think they look at that and they see that the good firms they grow fast. So in our space, actually, the average firm only grows about zero to two and a half percent, very little growth. But the winners are growing very rapidly. So what's happening is, if you look back a decade, someone said, you know, I'm going to go with this advisor because they're I golf with them, or I see them at church or temple or whatever. That's not how it is anymore. I mean, people are getting much smarter about this. They're doing research before they hire an advisor. And so in, if you look at the RA space, the independent wealth space, the vast majority of clients are going to the 25 largest firms in the country. And so you see many of these firms with very high double-digit growth rates, and the average firm, you know, slowly declining or staying generally flat. And so I think that's another big piece of it is because it's in the early stages, someone can look at that and go, I can identify what's going to happen here. It's going to be like tax. It's going to be like insurance. Who are those winners? If we invest in those winners, it'll probably work out. I think that's driving a lot of the consolidation. Then others look at it and say, hey, I'm going to have to lower my fee dramatically to compete, or I'm going to have to find a way to raise a bunch of money to add services or strategies to compete, or I can sell and get with the firm that I think might be the winner in the future and have all these services for my clients today and have a growth path for my advisors today and also get some liquidity for myself. And so you see a lot of sellers coming to market and a lot of investors coming to market. Looking out of 10 years from now, and you've been in this industry a while and you've had some great mentors along the way, what does the industry look like to you? Is it a few big players with small IRA houses underneath them where you know your advisor personally, you know your planner personally, but it's all part of something under an umbrella, like a creative planning, like a Carson? You know, the verdict is out on that. And I think there's a very, very diverse points of view. I mean, the, it, I think the thing you would read about the most is, hey, there's going to be a few winners and everyone else is, is going to 
fade away and not be able to compete. I don't believe that. I think if I had to look at one space, and, and that basically is, for example, the group benefits space. Like there are a few big players in every city, and there is no way a small shop is is competing with them, you know, going forward. That's where property casualty is clearly heading. But that's not where I think wealth management will be. I think it will look more like the tax world, where you will have, you know, whether it's two or six or whatever, there's gonna be a few firms that are strong national players and that have a real presence and a lot of sophistication, a lot of scope and scale. You'll have some regional competitors. And then I think there will be people that are able to compete in different ways. They either have much lower fees or they have a very unique service. They serve only dentists, for example, or something like that. So I think there will be lots of room in this space, but it's going to become consolidated. It will look There will be far fewer players than there are today. Let me ask you about wealth transfer. This is a big theme that's been bubbling in the industry for the past decade. Trillions of dollars passing from the baby boomers and Gen X down to our, our kids and our kids' kids. I think a lot of people had the perception that this was everything all at once, but this is a kind of a slow rolling ball that will maybe turn into an avalanche. What's your take on generational wealth transfer and all those trillions of dollars? I think it's real, but overstated. And I think the reason is the life expectancy has changed so much. And I think, uh, you know, I'm observing with with my clients that are in their 60s, usually when somebody was in their 60s, you know, none of their parents or their spouse's parents were around. Well, today, that's not true, right? Today, several of the parents, thankfully, are still around. And so what we're seeing is when life expectancy was in the early 70s, yeah, that, that would have worked out fine. But now life expectancy is moving into the mid to late 80s. And if you take people that actually have some economic freedom, they tend to have longer life expectancy because they're eating better. They take better care of themselves. They have better money for health care and, and so on. Playing pickleball. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see quite a few people living in their 90s. People born today, their life expectancy, a lot of people think when you take into account the advances of health care will be 100, right? So I think that what we're going to see is that last parent passes in their 90s and you're not going to inherit what you were inheriting when they were 70s because that was 20 years they weren't working and they were spending money on long-term care needs and so on. And so I think this is going to be uh, not the everything everywhere all at once thing to the way you put it. I think where this is going to be a slow trickle that's going to maybe peak years from now, but it's very different than I think people expected seven or eight years ago. Technology has also had a massive impact on your industry across all industries. Uh, when you just think about some of the onboarding platforms or the way I work with my advisor, we're very tech heavy. Now we have AI and AI is definitely going to impact this industry, but should make things a little bit more efficient. How do you see AI sort of helping the advisors of today do their job better for people like me? I think there are going to be a lot of things that that just get streamlined. Like we're going to take a property casualty policy and throw it through a scanner type thing, and we're going to get an analysis of everything that we need. Right now, we have people do that. You know, if we want to take your trust and outline it for you, hey, here's what your trust says. Are you sure this is what you wanted to say? We have a whole team of people that do that, and eventually, you know, a computer will do a lot of that. Right? Not everything. And I think we're going to see that across everything planning, investments, legal tax, and so on. It will prepare your tax return uh, for you in, in many instances. And so I think primarily it's going to make changes that I cannot, nor I, don't, I believe anyone can really truly foresee. But some of it is obvious and going to be very meaningful and going to come very, very quickly. Yeah, it seems like it's a ripe industry for that, especially that onboarding process and helping clients get to the next step but doing that a lot more efficiently all right let's get into your team's outlook from creative planning there's some big themes that we all need to be aware of as we try to grow our money over the next few years you point out that only 25 percent of managed funds outperform the market 
and you wonder why passive and index investing is so popular. If that's the case, then what are we paying for? It's the holistic services, but it's not as if I got a guy or I got a gal who's a great stock picker anymore. You got someone who can take care of the whole package. Why is the indexing sort of help change this industry too? I think, you know, very early on, we were very big passive investors to the point where we, in our original presentations, we had to explain what ETFs were to people. And I, and I know that in 2010, we were the largest holder of ETFs in the country. And I suspect today of all the independent firms, we're still the largest holder. And we do a lot of direct indexing as well. I think the decision isn't really what stock to own. I think it's what asset classes to own. You know, what should be US? What should be international? What should be small cap, mid cap? How much should be in bonds? Should I use private investments as well? I think a lot of private investments make a lot of sense. I mean, we're not a big fan of a lot of alternative investments like hedge funds because they're active managers. They tend to underperform the market as again, they did in 2023, universally almost. But I believe in private equity and private lending and private real estate. We've used those investments for a long time. And I think you take some indexing or direct indexing across various asset classes and bonds and private investments, and you can put together a portfolio that I think can probably do better than just owning you know, a couple broad indexes and probably make the ride a little less bumpy along the way too. Yeah, that, that is definitely become a theme. And especially as you want to grow your wealth, you have to be looking at all of these options. All right. Americans, as you guys say in your outlook, are too invested in America. We tend to ignore the international stock markets out there. Why is that a mistake, especially given the outperformance of the US over the past decade, really over the past two decades? There's big, great companies outside the US doing interesting things. But if you do the horse race, the US would win for the past 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think if you look at, say, 2010 to present, I mean, the large cap US index, the S&P 500 has just beaten everything. And if you were fortunate enough to only invest in large US tech, then that's really beaten uh, everything. But there are very long periods of time where one country does not do well. We see that in Japan, where it's been 30 years, right? But it even is in the US. From 2000 to 2010, large US stocks earned exactly 0% for an entire decade. And I remember that pretty vividly. Clients were like, hey, it's obvious the growth is overseas. Everything I read says that. Why are we invested in the US? It's, that's all behind us. And you know what did better than large US stocks? International stocks, emerging market stocks, real estate bonds, mid-sized stocks, and small, small stocks, basically everything. So there was an entire decade where it didn't work. And the easy answer becomes, well, I'll, I'll buy international from 2000 to 2010, and I'll buy the US from 2010 to 2023. Of course, it, the markets don't announce in advance uh, when they're going to outperform each other. We never know when the trade is going to happen, but we know when it happens, a lot of it tends to happen very quickly. When things turn, they happen very quickly. Look at small cap stocks over the last couple of months. Uh, they recovered m multiple years of losses in just a few weeks. After COVID, the S&P 500 recovered from a 34% fastest bear market drop in history in just a matter of months. So when things turn, they tend to turn very quickly. They tend to trade very quickly. And having all your eggs in one basket, you can get punished for a very long period of time. Yeah. And look at Japan, to your point. Uh, finally, the Japanese stock market waking up a little bit at the end of last year. All right. You say fund flows don't correlate to market performance. Seems counterintuitive. But what do you mean by that? Well, so sometimes people look and say, well, a lot of money is going into this. So because of that, it's going to outperform, right? And we really can't look at that. And in fact, investors tend to make this, the. sometimes you can look at it as a, a counterintuitive way to, to look at things. For example, the biggest outflows in recent stock market history were during COVID, you know, in the down market. So people were moving money out right before the market went up. That's a very common thread, you know, that by the time you see a lot of movement in capital, 
it tends to move at the wrong time. The average investor says, well, my God, this is obviously going to get worse, or this is obviously going to get better. And they throw up their hands and then they put their money in or out. It tends to be at the wrong time. If you look at the biggest outflows in market history, they almost always correlate with uh, market uh, turnarounds. So 0809, biggest outflow in history was in March of 09, just days before the market started its very dramatic recovery. We saw the same thing with COVID. So just saying, hey, everyone's doing this, it's usually means the opposite of what a, a layperson might think is going to happen. Yeah, run with the herd at your own peril. And you're right. It, it, usually we're a little late getting in when we see all those fun, fun flows coming in or out. All right, you talk about stocks outperforming other asset classes, but it takes time. To your point, this is a time. This is a marathon game. This is not a sprint. So if you want to sprint, you could check it other you could you try other methods but stocks usually outperforming other other asset classes you see that being the case going over the next 10 years why well, yeah i have a lot of conviction around that i think in any given year the odds of stocks are, are going to be positive or, or three out of four those are pretty good odds but not anything you want to bet your life savings on but you go over three years it's over 90 percent. you get out over 10 years it's you know 97 percent plus depending on what period you want to look at very 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 high odds and i think part of it is you know dividends cover part of the return and inflation covers part of the return so if we have a reasonable expectation things are going to cost more 10 years from now than they do today and i think every american probably feels that way it's not hard to piece together a puzzle where stocks do well over that period of time but more importantly when you look at periods of time where there's technological advances the stock market tends to eventually follow all of that innovation and really as as we sit here today we are on the brink of a lot of Star Trek moments where there's going to be stuff technology can do in our lifetime that I think is inconceivable to us. And so if you if you start to look at like the healthcare advances, the technological advances that are going to happen over the next five to 25 years, it makes me very, very optimistic about the markets at the same time. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. And back to Star Trek, and we're now speaking to people through our watches and seeing them that's crazy, but who knows what's coming next? Our kids and our grandkids are going to be up to all kinds of interesting stuff. All right. You also say, don't fear new highs in the stock market. I know this, but it took me a long time to learn it. But a lot of people say, oh, I don't know. It's at an all-time high. Stocks are at an all-time high. Or this stock's doubled over the past year. Should I keep investing in it? Why should we not be fearing all-time highs or new highs? Well, the stock market hits an all-time high about once every 19 or 20 days. So it's a very, very common thing. What's not common is what we've gone through for the last couple of years, where you go a couple of years without an all-time high. And again, if we if we look at a you know box of cornflakes or a, a value meal at McDonald's, we're not surprised that it hits an all-time high all the time, right? Sometimes there are sales and pullbacks, but for the most part, we expect prices to go up. And I guess stock markets are a reflection of these companies' revenues and ultimately their profits. And so it makes sense that the stock market will follow the pricing of all of these companies over time as well. People have been saying this for generations. This is a Peter Lynch theme. This is a Warren Buffett theme. This is a theme that a lot of people just get afraid of because new highs give people that vertigo. All right. You know, Peter, we are a website built on our financial and investing dictionary. I have to know you have so much experience in this industry. You've been around a lot of smart people and had some great mentors. What is your favorite investing term and why? My favorite investing term, just because I hear it so often and it's like kind of an eye roll term is downside protection. You know, and someone you know comes to me and says, "Well, I'm my advisor says this portfolio has downside protection." It usually follows with some story about tactical allocation. We're going to move money around, protect you against the downside. And you know, downside protection when it's real, you're always paying for it, 
right? So in your portfolio, if there's real downside protection, it means you're buying insurance in the form of an option to be able to exit a position at a certain price. And so it's downside protection at a cost, right? You're, you're paying a, a cost. Downside protection on my home if there's a fire because I'm paying for insurance. That kind of downside protection is real. The, I'm going to outsmart the market. Downside protection is a big warning sign. You're with the wrong advisor. Yeah, great point. Defense, you need defense to turn into offense as well. Protect the downside. Great term. We love that. And we will definitely link to it and you on our website. Peter Maluk, the CEO of Creative Planning, and you have a new book out, Money Simplified. We will link to that in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining the Express. Great to have you here. Thanks, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from the good folks at the CMT, the Chartered Market Technicians Association. We love our technical analysts and chart experts, and you can read their expertise in our daily chart advisor newsletter. This week's term from the CMT is actually a pattern, a continuation pattern to be precise, and we love that pattern because it will help us ascertain whether this rally to all-time highs has some staying power. According to the world's greatest investing and finance website, continuation patterns are an indication traders and investors look for to signal that a price trend is likely to remain in play. We can spot these patterns in the middle of an existing trend, and they'll indicate to us that the trend will most likely resume once the pattern has completed. Traders look at various time frames for continuation patterns like tick charts, weekly charts, triangles, flags, pennants, and rectangles to try to figure out if the trend in motion will actually stay in motion. Since the S&P 500 finally broke through what we call resistance, the continuation patterns suggest that this trend will continue. We'll let you know if that changes, or you can sign up for our Chart Advisor newsletter and be among the first to know. We're going to let the legendary Jack Bogle take us out this week to celebrate the market highs. Why not? Bogle, the godfather of index investing, reminds us in this interview with Morningstar's Christine Benz that we just got to keep investing throughout the highs, but especially throughout the lows. I know I'm not smart enough to get out at the high. I know I'm not smart enough to get back in at the low. So I'm just going to stay the course, as we would say at Vanguard, and hang on through all that. And importantly, if I'm trying to accumulate money for retirement or to buy a home or to educate my children, what you want to do is keep investing. Great advice, Jack. I'll do that. Thanks for joining us this week, and special thanks to Peter Maluk from Creative Planning for joining the show. We'll link to the great research from Creative Planning and his book in the show notes, where you'll find links to all the reports we cited on this week's episode. Find those wherever you ride the Express and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Rate, review, share, say nice things about us, or give us some honest feedback. We love it. Stay warm, stay smart, and stay invested, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.